Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dan Assor Show, supported by TF Connect, Tarsus Group, Terrapin and 19 Group, and the show's official venue sponsor, Carbon Neutral Conference and Exhibition Centre, BDC London, who are currently setting their sights on reaching net zero before 2030. Visit bdc.london for more information. Please check out all of my content on danassor.com and be notified first about new episodes by subscribing to my YouTube channel and by following me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify platforms. Good morning, Phil. How are you today? Good morning, Dan. I'm fine, actually. Uh, pleasant Easter day. I should be going for a bike ride in half an hour. A bike ride? Very yeah, good yeah. for you. Yep, it yeah. is Easter Sunday. Thank you for giving yeah. up your time today. So, Phil, we're going to talk about um, the current state of the trade show and exhibition industry. Um, but before we do that, the last time you were on my podcast was, can you believe it, two and a half years ago now? It was really? October 2020. Um, yeah. I just want to ask you, um, looking back at that time and obviously the subsequent couple of years, what's your sort of overriding emotion now when you look back and think about how the individuals reacted and organizations responded during the pandemic i i, I think it, in a nutshell <clears throat> of course we were in a situation where a lot of people are asking questions about oh can the trade show industry survive this can it survive the pandemic etc 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 and uh, you know an enormous amount of pivot to digital pivot to digital um and what has been really interesting is that we've moved from a this is a crisis for trade shows this is a crisis for the valuation of trade show companies like my companies like closest to the 19 and we've moved actually to almost the opposite end of the spectrum which is actually trade shows have survived this amazingly well and if trade shows can survive a pandemic they can survive anything and and while we don't have proof of it yet you could argue that because of that trade shows are even more valuable than they were before the pandemic because they've proved their resilience in a remarkable way sure and we're going to get into some of that i just want to show you i want to play a 15 second clip from our conversation in october okay. um, <laughs> so bear with me i'm just going to play this over 800 years trade shows have survived wars pestilences floods Heaven knows what else. They survived the Black Death. They survived the plague. They survived numerous plagues. They survived yeah. Spanish flu. And I can't see a strong argument for saying they won't survive this in broadly the same format. So that was two and a half years ago. You were, Do you think you were nope. proved right? <laughs> I'm very, very prescient. And you can see the Daxons behind me as well. Yeah. Um, I, well, it would appear so, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, ask me in five years' time, but um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, and, and, and it is true. I mean, trade shows in, in this format have existed for 800 years, and they have survived just about everything. So, I mean, as long as there are trade, trade, as long as people want to get together and talk to each other about business matters and all and social matters, then why won't trade shows survive? Sure. And broadly, do you think the recovery curve has been as you would expect it? And I'd be interested to sort of hear your views about uh, different nuances within that, maybe different regions. I mean, obviously, we'll come on to China in a minute, but um, just broadly. Yes, I, I, you just mentioned China. China is the yeah. is the obvious exception. And I think that I, I think that there's a lot of evidence, anecdotal, um, and, and a lot of work has been done on the major regions 
and certainly the UK and the US appear now, if we take 2023, uh, to have recovered back to 2019 levels. Not not every show, obviously. Uh, and obviously, you've got companies like Closer Still, which are 50% plus ahead of where they were in 2019. Um, Europe, still a little bit behind. Uh, the Messen have been having a hard time of it. Uh, but the Messen, of course, are much more dependent on genuine worldwide international events and particularly exhibitors from the Asia-Pacific region. And therefore, they're, they're running behind. How far behind? Hard to say. You can't get straightforward information there, but probably 10 to 20 percent. But that reflects the fact that they are a truly international market, the German market, sure. as opposed to the UK and the US, which are, uh, let's face it, provincial markets, ultimately. Uh, but the exception is China. And there's no point me saying, I think China is here, or I think China is there. I don't think anybody knows um, how far China has come back from where it was in 2019. Is it at 60%, 70%, 80%? I don't know, and nor does anybody else. Sure. So that's a, a wait and see. I want to yeah. dig a bit deeper into the UK for a minute. Um, the AEV, for those that aren't aware, the Association of Event Venues, recently published their size and scale index report for the uk report, yeah, yeah, which, I, which um, I get involved in. I, I i i kind of authenticate it for them sure and as i understand it, it was the first report they've published since 2019 um yes, and ultimately the report shows year-on-year -year comparisons across key event industry metrics and yeah, includes yeah. trends and analysis um i've had a, a look at some of the summary findings of which i know you've commented on recently um i just yeah. want to touch upon two or three of those points one interesting thing, which I didn't I didn't realize, is that it suggests that half of shows now are annual. Uh, yes, only no, half of them I are annual. Know, I, yeah. I don't know how to read that. I don't yeah. know whether that means what has happened. Because they were looking at 2022. Sure. And uh, the, the calendar was still way out of sync in, in 2022. Um, and, and therefore, I think you probably need a year or two to see whether that whether that works or not, because that that doesn't add up, Dan. I mean, you and I right. know large numbers of shows, and shows that are annual are still shows that are annual. Sure. And and also, what would be the benefit of not running it annually? I mean, yes. to, to be, yeah. you know, to get an international audience, I don't know. I, I, I can't really see the benefit of running it, in your experience, every other year or once every three years. I know TASAs have done that model for in a number of their sectors. What are the main benefits of, of not running it annually? Well, I I, I mean, Tarsus, uh, Tarsus, of course, have got uh, LabelX and Dubai Air Show. Yeah. Uh, and LabelX has been a biennial show forever, you know, the big one in Brussels. Dubai sure. Air Show was all started as a, as a biennial, partially because you have other shows like Farnborough and Paris in the cycle, okay. and therefore we're trying to right. get into an international cycle. There, there, are, there are plenty of sectors. DSEI is another big one. Uh, where the rate of change is not such that uh, there is a strong argument for an annual show. I mean, IPEX, which was one of the five or six biggest shows in the UK, owned by Informa, um, the big printing machinery show, was every four years and, until it disappeared. And that, again, was because printing machinery doesn't change at any great, uh, any right. great rate, and it made sense to run it every four years. Okay. Um, another sort of fact that came out of it was that the biggest single number of trade events were now in the medical sector i think it's just yes, right yes. as, as opposed to the leisure giftware houseware etc 
sector. Sure. That's that's new. Um, yeah, I, I I mean again, you know, from Closer Stills' point of view, I mean half of Closer Stills' turnover yep. is in medical healthcare events. We have seventeen medical healthcare events in the UK alone. Uh, I, that doesn't prove a great deal. It just happens to show that it's a sector that we're very, very aware of it. I, I, I wonder whether that's a surprise. I mean, do, does it actually suggest that medical and health care is getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Or does it suggest that sectors like giftware are getting smaller? Sure. Um, you, you can read that both ways, can't you? But I, I, in the sense that uh, healthcare in the healthcare is a growing percentage of gross domestic product in every single major economy and continues to grow at a material rate, you would expect trade shows to reflect that. Sure, uh, it's sense. one of the reasons, I mean, I, I, when Andy and I started Closer Still, I mean, we didn't have many uh, driving um, absolutes, uh, but one was to try only to invest in sectors which were a growing percentage of GDP. Sure. Um, and, and we've stuck to that. Um, what's your view on what it suggested with regards to gross space? And you might want to give a definition between gross and net and why it reports on gross, I guess, because it's from a venue perspective and they're interested in the whole floor. It suggests yeah. that gross space has been in decline. Um, yeah. But I know you've got your own views on that. Yeah, I, yes, I, I have quite strong views on this. I mean, yes, it's the AUV you're doing it. So it's it's for the venues and therefore from the venue's sure. point of view, gross space is more, like gross space is what they get paid for as opposed to net space. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there has clearly been a decline in gross space and in visitors from 2015. But I think the problem with that is that unfortunately the SASE report takes as its base year 2015. Um, and that's because that was the first year the AEV did the report. So I don't, I don't blame them for that. But unfortunately, um, we, we do have you know, a, a pretty reasonable figures going back quite a long way, showing broad trends in exhibitors, square meters, uh, visitor numbers, etc., going back to about 1989. And, and what is clear is that 2015 was the peak of the cycle. If you, if you take 2010 as your starting point, you'll find that 2022 is about the same level as 2010, 2011 in terms of gross square meters, net square meters and visitors. And what happened is post the financial crisis of 28, 2008, 2009, we saw a gradual and quite significant increase in the size of exhibitions, the number of visitors uh, over that period, up to about 2015, rising about 10 to 12% over that five year period. And then we hit this brick wall um, and the brick wall. So from 2016 onwards, we started seeing a decline in net square meters, gross square meters and visitor numbers. And you can ascribe that, as I have in my comments, to one of two things. One is it's a natural cycle. Cycles go up and down. It's a sine curve. Sure. There's nothing. It doesn't particularly mean anything. Or you can ascribe it to the fact that a year later, of course, we hit Brexit and Brexit clearly when you look at exhibitor numbers coming to shows from 2016, 2017 onwards, Brexit clearly had a significant effect on the industry. I'm not saying it was a 20% hit. It doesn't need to be a 20% hit. A 1% or 2% hit can be quite significant. You lose 2% of your exhibitors, and it's a significant amount. And what we've seen since uh, 2015, which was the peak, is we've seen a slow decline 
of around, I would say, one to one and a half percent a year in terms of net square meters, gross square meters. Sure. And it's not consistent, uh, but it seems to be there and it seems to be real. And I, 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 and it's not true in France. It's not true in Germany. It's not true in Spain. We run lots of shows in France, Germany and Spain, and we have plenty of stats from those markets. It's something that applies in Europe to the UK. And therefore, it's hard to ascribe it to anything other than Brexit. Sure. But actually, given everything that's been thrown at the trade show industry here and elsewhere, those statistics and that you know level of potential decline actually suggest that the industry's held up pretty well over that period. Well, it has held up. It yeah. has held up well. I mean, you can actually say 2022, um, we're performing just as well as we were in 2010, 2011. And that's factually, as far as I can tell, that's factually correct. So you can actually say that over a 10-year period, the industry has done remarkably well if you can if you want to compare it with as as many media forms as you like with the exception of digital sure. um the, the industry has, has held up amazingly well and, and also I, you know I, I, a company can be losing one one and a half percent of its square meters a year but if it's raising prices at five percent it doesn't mean its revenue yeah. is falling and you know on that basis its revenue is going up at three and a half percent a year so it doesn't suggest that trade show companies are um are are, are, are losing revenues uh, that's not what's happening at all. Sure. And also, I, I read that you've done your own um, research and evidence from the largest trade show group suggests that 2023 will be 16% ahead of 2019 well, in terms well, of net profit. If you, if you take the seven largest groups, um, which we can name if you like, then on a, on average, and, and actually it's an average of averages, um, sure around 15 to 20 percent ahead in 2023 as opposed to 2019 um the one which based on the numbers they themselves are giving out uh which is running up a little bit behind is reed uh, rx uh they've lost all of russia of course which hit them hard sure. uh and they've uh, you know they're still unsure about what's happening in china but uh everybody else seems to be ahead of where they were again you've got to inf there is this problem here which you've got to inflation discount it for, for the for the whole period uh, let's just say 2000 to 2020 we didn't really talk about inflation in the industry there was inflation but it was it just was of such a level that it didn't really have any great material effect in the last two years inflation has had a material effect and therefore um Trade show companies have been putting their prices up like everybody else has been putting their prices up. Sure. And therefore, if you talk about 15 to 20% uh, ahead in terms of revenue and, in, and EBITDA, you've, you've got to allow for the fact that inflation is having an effect in a way that it didn't have five years ago. Sure. And what are you, in terms of the companies like Closer Steel um, and 19 specifically, in terms of the number of exhibitors, just, just sticking with the UK for a minute, are you seeing the numbers consistent with previous? Because again, coming back to the report that we just mentioned, the size and scale and index report, it suggested in 22 that the percentage of companies exhibiting compared to 2015 um, was down uh, around 71% at the 2015 level. Um, yeah, I, what are I, you I, seeing in 23? I, I think that 71% is just a freak number. Uh, yeah. I really do. I, I mean, I'd wait for 2023 before I read that. Um, well, well, again, I um I, I can obviously talk specifically about closer still in 19 sure. but, but indeed you know in both cases um for a number of reasons they are just way way ahead I, I i mean closer still year on year this year is 27 
will be because by by the end of April, um, you've got a pretty good idea what your numbers for the whole year are sure. going to be. Obviously, will be twenty seven percent ahead, like for like year on year. Uh, nineteen rather better than that, but then nineteen has got two three shows. Um, it's safety and security series. It's emergency services show and its retail technology show, which are which are just growing at a tremendous rate. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that's the, that applies sure. to the whole industry. It's just it's just that both companies happen to be in sectors which are very, very buoyant and which are doing extremely well. Sure. I just want to turn quickly to conversion rates. Um, so specifically on free uh, to attend shows and a lot of the trade shows yeah. are. Lots of people I speak to read lots of commentary are suggesting that, you know, maybe we're still getting the same people, uh, numbers of people registering, but conversion rates are dropping. It's getting harder to mobilize people. And actually, when they do um, come, uh, they may be expecting a slightly different experience. Um, what's your view on conversion rates? Again, it's sort of general uh, response across the board from people that you've spoken to. From Yeah, um, certainly. The last quarter of 21 and the first half of 22, I would guess that conversion rates were, on average were probably no better than 35%. Right. Um, but you, you have to be very careful how you read that. Um, of course, what, what everybody had were very, very large databases of people who registered for a show which didn't run in 20, didn't run in 21, and those names were still sitting there on the databases. And so sure. uh, they still counted as pre-registrants. But of course, as we all know, the later somebody registers for a show, far, far more likely they'll attend. If somebody registers for a show, and I'm just talking about on average, uh, 10 months out from a show, that their likelihood of attendance is no more than 25%. If somebody registers in the week before a show, then their likelihood of attendance is around 70%. I'm speaking general stats over a long period of time. So I, I think that 35% number was real, but I think you've got to caveat it. And it's not really until now uh, when we've got um, shows back on a normal annual cycle, and therefore with a normal annual cycle of registration, um, that we're seeing uh, numbers that, that, that I think are um, you, you could rely, regard as reliable. Certainly talking about my own companies, I certainly think 50%, 50% plus, um, uh, would be normal and in, in healthcare, rather better than that because healthcare of its nature um, is, is likely to attract sure. a more stable audience. I think also healthcare and generally any other shows where this applies to getting, you know, CPD credits, you know, certified professional development for attending a show uh, yeah. obviously will make a difference, I guess, in terms of people. That's a, that's a very, very, big, very big part of it. Absolutely right. Yeah. Sure. Hi, I hope you enjoyed the podcast so far. Just going to take a brief pause to tell you a little bit more about our official venue sponsor, the Business Design Centre. The BDC is London's most stylish venue, playing host to hundreds of conferences and exhibitions every year. It is also the permanent home to over 125 businesses who occupy the offices and showrooms based there all year round. Opened over 36 years ago in 1986 and formerly the Royal Agricultural Hall, the building was rescued from demolition in 1981 by entrepreneur Sam Morris and was fully restored and reopened as the UK's first integrated trade exhibition and conference complex. Today, the BDC attracts almost one million visitors every year. 
Sustainability is at the forefront of everything they do at the BDC with a goal to reach net zero before 2030. For over 13 years, it has been a certified carbon neutral venue and the steps they have taken to improve their impact on the planet have been recognised within the events industry and further. The BDC has received recognition with multiple awards, including Exhibition News CSR Award in both 2018 and 2019, and more recently the EN ESG Award in 2022. Please visit bdc.london for more information. Now back to the podcast. Um, I want to turn to the recent um, M&A mergers and acquisitions activity, yes. of which there has been quite a bit. Um, yes, for those for those that aren't aware or need reminding, so Tarsus has been acquired by Informa. Uh, Hive is possibly going to be taken private by Providence, um, which obviously is a, a large shareholder and closer still. Uh, and Cvent. Sorry, said that again. Sixty-four percent. Sixty-four percent. Sixty-four percent. Sure. Um, and Cvent have been purchased by Blackstone. Um, Owners of Clarion. Yep. Starting with the Informa Tarsus deal, um, just generally, was that a surprise to you? Were you expecting it? You had no. What, what was your What's your general impression? No, it was a surprise to everybody, including Doug. I think. Um, <laughs> I had Doug was, on the show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know you've spoken to him. Um, yeah. It was, it was, it was surprising. It wasn't surprising that Informa wanted to buy Tarsus. There was no surprise there. They'd made a couple of previous approaches, but there was certain things about it which were very surprising. Um, one is that the deal was start to finish four weeks, yeah. which is amazing in in this world. It, it suggests. You know, the amount of due diligence you can do in four weeks is really very, very small indeed. Um, so for Informer, it was, you know, they knew the company well enough. They didn't need to go into the numbers. At least that was their view. Um, they wanted to do the deal. It was an opportunity. And after all, the size Informer are, uh, you know, they don't, you know, they'll, they'll turn over, what, 11 billion sterling this year, I hope, because I'm an Informer shareholder. Um, you know, they, they don't they don't grow by picking off shows that are that are generating a one million of EBITDA. So there aren't that many opportunities, um, and it was opportunistic. Um, among the things that were surprising about it was that Charterhouse did not seek any alternative bids. Uh, you would have thought they would, in particular, have approached Providence, and they didn't. They yeah. they said, "Yeah, we'll do the deal. We'll do it straight away." Um, and we will um, uh, will effectively agree a number pretty quickly, which they did. And instead of going to somebody else like Providence or Blackstone, uh, you know, will you top this bid? They didn't. Now that in itself is very unusual for a private equity company, mm. and and I don't claim to know the inside story on it. Uh, the other thing which is very very unusual for a private equity deal is is they took half the consideration in shares. Yeah. Half income, half in shares. Again, very unusual for a private equity company. Now, I, I think you can, I mean, I'm an informer shareholder, so I certainly would hope that informer shares will increase in value in the foreseeable future. Uh, and you could argue that owning informer shares was quite a good, um, uh, not a stupid act on, on any, anybody's part. But again, to take half the deal in stock, which makes it much more attractive for informer, of course, because mm. they have to... Uh, throw out far less cash for the deal is again very very unusual so you, you have a couple of real oddities in that deal the third oddity which i i think you spoke to doug about 
was Informa claiming that it was 9.9 times profits. Um, for anybody who, listening who, who isn't used to this kind of thing, that means that if, if your profit's a pound, then the buyer has paid £9.90 pence for, for the company. I mean, that just uh, generated a very loud chuckle in the financial community as being a, a piece of absurdity because immediately following that 9.9 .9 times, Informer said uh, that is after allowing for 20 million of synergies. I don't think they put synergies in inverted commas, but they should have done. And what they meant by 20 million of synergies was, of course, 20 million of cost cuts. And most of that 20 million is going to be in salaries, clearly. Sure. I'd be surprised. I mean, Doug ran a very, very tight ship by the standards of trade show companies. And I'd be, be very interested to know where Informer are going to get 20 million of savings from. But clearly, that's what they're saying. So you, you can't say 9.9 .9 times. Most people looking at the deal, like Steve Mollington and, and others, are saying... It's somewhere between 12 and 14 times, probably 13 plus uh, was, was what the real deal was. Uh, there's also an oddity with Tarsus in that they have these two massive biennials, um, Labour Lectures yes. and the Dubai Show. And that makes it very, very hard to annualise profits because you have to smooth the biennials over, over a 24-month period. So it's, sure. it's hard to, to, in, to build that in as well. So as a shareholder of Informa, um, yeah. you're broadly happy with the move? Yeah, yeah. I think from Informa's point of view, it was one of the deals that they could do. I mean, they, they're, they're presenting themselves now as a, as a trade show business. They're obviously sure. not 100% trade shows, but um, uh, they're f f first and foremost a trade show business. And, and yes, it was a deal that could be done. I mean, there are, there, there are of the six or seven significant size companies there are very few deals that can be done yeah. of that kind of size sure i want to turn attentions to the the proposed hive deal um yeah. and for those that aren't aware hive is a publicly listed company uh so i should say it's it's, it's proposed at the moment um so it's not certain to go through um what do you think the benefit just generally, and we come back to high specifically in a minute, or it would be of taking a business private uh, after being public? Well, you cut a lot of costs out. I, I mean, companies that are private and have to report everyone in the UK every six months, in, in the US every three months, uh, have to spend a great deal of time on preparing um, preparing their annual accounts. They have to spend a great deal of time on on, on shareholder relationships. Uh, they need to employ PR firm, uh, city PR firms, which I promise you is not uh, having having run the publicly quoted yeah. companies, um, which is not uh, cheap at all. And you have to spend a great deal of your management time um, massaging your shareholder base and massaging your uh, massaging the city generally. Now, a, a private company doesn't have to do any of that, so so that's quite a significant saving. Um, so uh, one can one can take that into account. I, I should say, even though Providence owns sixty four percent of Closer Still, um, I know no more about this deal than you do, Dan. I uh, sure. we've not been any uh, because it's a publicly quoted company. Providence can't talk about it to outsiders, sure. and Closer Still is an outsider as far as this deal is concerned. So literally, I know no more than than you do about it. But one other thing. Um, which is a relatively new piece of information, is that it's not actually a Providence bid. 
the, the company that's bidding for Hive is actually a yes. joint venture between Providence and Searchlight, another private equity company. So, so actually, okay. it, 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 it's, this is a different entity uh, from the entity that owns Closest Tell. It's, it's two private equity sure. companies coming together to make this bid. There's nothing unusual about that. I mean, private equity companies regularly join forces to make bids. But, but it makes it, uh, that alone makes it quite interesting. Um, benefits are high, if, um, in your um, opinion, understanding that I have a sort of inside view, but just from an outsider. I don't, I don't in. have an inside view on Providence and the deal. I, yeah. I have a, I, obviously I have a lot of information about Hive. I know their shows very well, obviously. Sure. I mean, everybody knows Spring Fair, everybody knows Bet, everybody knows Core Winding. You know, we all, we all know these shows. Um, there is, there are certain, there's one particular oddity about this, um, about this prospective deal. Yeah. And again, this is only from public records. This is only from comment in the Financial Times, sure. Times and elsewhere. Uh, but, it, but it's a real oddity. You've probably read down that um, quite a few of the Hive shareholders, the institutional shareholders, uh, have said they're not happy with the deal. Sure. Uh, and M&G in particular, which is a very, very big shareholder in Hive, has said they think Hive is worth considerably more money. And um, I don't actually know where this information comes from, but it comes from within Hive. It was probably a, 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 an annual report or a half-year report where the company said that it was hopeful that within the foreseeable future um, it could grow to a turnover of 250 million and an, EBIT, uh, and a, and a, a, an operating percentage of 20, uh, sorry, 30 percent, which means turnover of 250 million this is sterling uh, and uh, an operating profit of 75 million now if the if that's what the company thinks it's going to do in the immediate future or in the near future then it's very hard to see why it would have accepted why the board would have accepted an offer which effectively values it at only five times that i i mean the offer equity enterprise value, you could call it 320, you could call it 400, you could call it 481. There's a whole range of ways of interpreting the offer. But but if in two years time, Hive can really make 75 million, then buying it for 400 million is only five times earnings. So if if the shareholders and the board believe that to be the case, why why are they recommending the acceptance of the offer? That's That's the oddity. And again, I'm not, very important to stress, I'm not stating this out of any inside knowledge at all. I'm simply quoting uh, what is in the public domain and, and what has been reported and what has been stated by some of the Hive shareholders. Sure, but that's that a watching idea. brief. That's a watching brief. And obviously I think uh, there's a deadline coming up in the next couple of weeks. So we're, we'll see yeah, yeah. more, I guess, yeah, no, more I, about that. 75% of the shareholders have to vote in favor of the offer. Sure, right? sure. Um, and then, as I mentioned, Cvent were purchased by Blackstone. I think it was just shy of five billion dollars. Yeah, it was a big one. Yeah. Um, just generally, then, obviously, shows the interest in private equity and just and generally M and A in this activity is still in rude health. Um, do you see this trend continuing? Uh, and generally, from a private well, equity perspective, they're, they're still they're, they're still interested in this as a sector. Well, as owner of a couple of very large uh, trade yeah. show assets. I certainly hope so. 
Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, when when you when you cut through the undergrowth of the Hyde deal and the Tarsus deal, I mean, they're they're, they're both in, in conventional terms twelve to fourteen times earnings. Let's call it thirteen times, and thirteen times earnings take takes you back to twenty eighteen, and Clarion, which was the biggest deal around that time, was twelve point eight. So, uh, in effect. And, and the two companies we're talking about are two of the eight, two of the seven or eight largest trade show groups in the world, excluding the MESA, which don't really count sure. in this discussion. So um, for, for offers to be being made around 13 times suggests that uh, the, the, the financial perception of trade show groups is, is back to where it was um, 2018, 2019. And perhaps... Given that we're not that far away from the pandemic, perhaps perhaps even more positive. Um, that that would be. I, I, I would like to call that an objective assessment, although because of my own involvement in the industry, it's a little bit a little bit difficult for me to be totally objective about it. Clearly, because I sure. I have interest in it, I, and I think what's also very interesting is that it wasn't until the first quarter of this year that investors could have confidence that the industry had really come back from the pandemic. In other words, it would have been very surprising to see these deals in September 2022. Sure. But by March 23, it seems to me a very clear statement that yes, the trade show industry has come back. The pandemic has not damaged it significantly. In many ways, the, 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 the existing companies might even be stronger. And therefore, let's get our bids in now rather than wait another six or 12 months when actually these assets might be even more expensive. Um, I appreciate you, the, the answer you might give to this particular question might, might be a, a guarded one, but in terms of closer still, um, yeah. obviously it'd be no surprise that at some point uh, there'd be another exit. Um, what's, do you have a, an updated view on the timeline of that? Um, how's that? Where's that looking at the moment? I mean, the answer is it's not so much guarded as, as honest. I mean, the answer yeah. is the answer is don't know. I, sure. I, I mean, the last closest till deal with Providence was on Christmas Eve, twenty eighteen, and had you asked me then whether I would have expected an exit by twenty twenty three, I would have said yes. Yeah, I would have expected there to be an exit. Uh, the pandemic, obviously changed everything. Um, the events of the last month have arguably made an exit yeah. a little bit sooner than it might have been. Um, but I'd also say that the company, and I, I, I was going to say you would expect me to say this, wouldn't you, Dan, but uh, you used to work for Closer Steel and you know the company yeah. quite well uh, and, and you know how it works. Um, the company really is doing so well at the moment and its sectors are doing so well. I mean, essentially medical and healthcare is half the business, top end of IT. Learning technologies is phenomenally strong and we don't do anything else, that's all we do. Um, those are all sectors that are doing incredibly well. And I don't think we would want to sell the business in the immediate future because the prospects in the short term, by which I mean probably two to three years, are so very, very good. Um, sure. So uh, I know we don't have a time scale. I certainly don't think it's tomorrow or anywhere near tomorrow. Okay. Thank you. Um, just finally, I just want to talk about you. 
you referenced an article a few months ago that you suggested that possibly one of the, the next major issues for trade shows is deglobalization. Yeah. Um, and we touched briefly upon China in the earlier part of this conversation um, and Brexit. For those that didn't read your article about that, um, I'm interested sort, sort of if you can just bring that to life. What do you mean by that? Do you still hold that view? Um, be good if I can just get some updated views on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the more common term, particularly in the States, is onshoring, right. which is which is bringing back, particularly to the United States, manufacturing, which, which of course had gone en masse um, uh, to, to China, to Vietnam, etc. And and the you know the, the trend is very clear. I, I mean, you, unfortunately, the, the the intervention of the pandemic makes reading long-term stats very, very difficult indeed. Sure. Because clearly world trade uh, collapsed in 2020, 2021. Um, but even, even in 2019, one, one could see the graph of globalization, the graph of transportation. Um, and you can follow it with things like containerization, you know, how many full containers are being shipped across the Pacific, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the best way to follow it. That, that that graph was flattening out. And in as much as we can read what's going on now, 2022, 2023, um, we're not seeing that graph turning sharply upwards. If anything, it's probably um, declining slightly. So it affects the US more than it affects anywhere else. Uh, partially, it's pure politics. It's, it's to an extent Trumpian politics. It's I want you to bring back your manufacturing onshore yeah. and onshore in this context includes mexico of course it's not just united states within its borders you can include mexico and canada within this it's partially security i mean look at look at the responses to TikTok recently yeah they've been extremely interesting look at the responses to huawei it's always a difficult one to pronounce huawei um and the fact that the us and the uk and and several other european countries have banned Huawei's, Huawei's um, technology within their within their 5G systems. So th there's a significant security element in it as well. In other words, um, a concern about growth of China is the wrong way to put it. A growth about the potential influence of China and and um, the, the amount of um, information that China, in particular, is able to obtain from technology developments. Now, I, this isn't an accusation at all. I mean, this is all theoretical. This is about what may or may not be the case. But when you get to a point, I mean, I was listening to one of the Congress hearings on, um, and this was relatively early on in the pandemic, about some of the problems the US was going to face. And one fact which was revealed is that 91% of all the paracetamol which is consumed in the United States comes from China. Um, Ninety-five percent of all of the advanced microchips, which are used um, by Apple, etc., 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 come from Taiwan. All right, Taiwan's not part of China, but one understands the significance. Yeah. And a lot of these numbers were shocked. Seemed to be shocks to Congress. Seemed to be shocks to the general public. If the articles in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal were to be believed, and I think that's part of the same feeling that hold on, we better get control of the things that matter to us. And, and this is this is tending to, to to stop the trending globalization, certainly in manufactured goods. Um, 
and, and, and bring it back on shore. I have to say, this doesn't really have a very significant effect on US trade shows or UK trade shows, both of which are essentially provincial. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of exhibitors in, in both countries at trade shows are local, um, and therefore it doesn't really affect trade shows. In the US. It does affect trade shows in Germany. Um, where where two thirds of their exhibitor base is non is non German, so I, I, that's if you like a um, a view of the future. I, I I mean another subtlety is while it affects anything that's manufactured, and that's really where the emphasis has been. It doesn't necessarily affect globalization of what you might call middle class jobs. I mean the ability to transfer. Uh, uh, interpretation of medical data, interpretation of legal data, interpretation of accounting data, the ability to transfer the performance of those roles from uh, Europe and the United States, in particular to India, continues apace. So you can call that a form of globalization, but it's a middle-class globalization as opposed to a, to, to, to a manufactured good globalization. So this isn't about economies necessarily closing in. It's about economies changing changing dramatically. I, I mean, we all know that, that most interpretation of medical data, MRI scans, CAT scans, PET scans, etc., is now done outside the UK and the US. Sure. Because, of course, it can just be emailed to somewhere where people just as qualified will do that interpretation for considerably less money. Yeah. Thank you for that. I know we, we touched upon China. Just just briefly, I read a lot about Saudi Arabia and obviously Saudi Arabia generally, uh, their footprint is expanding into lots of areas. Not, you know, I'm not just talking trade shows, but sport and and, 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 and other sectors. Um, what's your view of, of the sort of trade show opportunities within that region? Well, um, we don't have anything in that region. We don't no. have anything in China. Um, I wouldn't say that was deliberate. I would say it was because as a, you know, both uh, closer still and 19 were startup companies and it takes quite a bit of resource to, to build um, um, operations in, in those countries. Um, and at any particular time, we, we, you know, didn't have the funds to do so. Um, I mean, Dubai has proved Dubai and Abu Dhabi have proved a very, very successful location for quite a lot of businesses, particularly DMG, of course. Um, and I don't have particularly negative views there. I, I, I think, I don't know, I, I, I suppose I'd be, I, I would be and am cautious um, right. for all the reasons that the Premier League is cautious about Newcastle. Yeah. Uh, for all the reasons that the Premier League will be very cautious about Manchester United if the Qatari bid succeeds. Um, and I don't have any more insights than anybody else does reading the Financial Times and the Times and you know, trying to come to some conclusions. From a trade show point of view, uh, you don't have to plant flags around the world. I, I'm, I'm a great op opponent of the right. let's plant flags everywhere in the world, which has been pursued by one or two of our, our very large businesses. Uh, I'm a great proponent of, of running very, very good trade shows. And it doesn't particularly matter where those trade shows are. I don't feel the need to have a flag in China or a flag in Dubai. Um, 
which is the antithesis of the policy which certainly Mike Rusbridge pursued at Reed, uh, a policy which I understood, but I don't feel the need to have 40 flags in around the world. I feel the need to have 40 great exhibitions. Sure. Thank you. Final question. Um, someone who is maybe 18 years of age now uh, might become an event director of a trade show when they're 35 in the year 2040. What sort of event do you think they'll be planning? Similar to what it is today? <laughs> well, of course, of course, the great, the great mistake that everybody makes in attempting to predict the future is assuming that it's going to be just like just like today with a few minor changes and it doesn't matter what you're talking yeah. about you know that's the mistake everybody makes and and what of course everybody misses are, are the black swan events or the the yeah. changes that just come along completely out of the blue i mean not least you know bill gates and and, and pcs for instance which uh in 1975 um would have been completely inconceivable i mean even as late as 2007 we didn't have the iphone it's not that long ago it's only 15 years ago that the iphone sure. actually arrived and and the, the change in the world in the 15 years because everybody's holding one of these little devices in their hands is absolutely staggering i i think you're asking a question about digitalization aren't you um i'm asking a question about you know attendees um of the future uh and what they're going to expect uh, at a show and then people that are planning that and trying to sort of respond to their needs do you do you see it fundamentally different yeah you know, we had the conversation two years ago and your view was it's going to come back broadly the same um i guess i'm asking do you think that's going to be consistent and I, we don't have crystal ball but essentially how you know the the format of trade shows in 20 years time um the the conceit, if you like, that trade shows have existed for 800 years since the Holy Roman Emperor gave gave the first trade show um, concessions to Frankfurt and Leipzig in 1240. <clears throat> that happens to be, you know, one of my standard stock sure. lines. Uh, and I think somebody who believes that and says for 800 years trade shows have fundamentally been the same, and they have. And those shows still, those two shows still run in Frankfurt and Leipzig, by the way, 800 years mm -hmm. later. Um, it would be very perverse for me to say, actually, after 800 years, suddenly in the next 15, particularly after what we've seen over the last sure. three or four years with the pandemic and the last 20 years with the development of digitalization, it would be odd if I said that I thought that trade shows would be dramatically different because I don't. Uh, I think people go to trade shows for all sorts of reasons, um, many of which are, are not transactional. And I think they will still have those needs and have that desire to go and meet friends and meet their peers and see what's happening in the world. Um, and I think the Frankfurt Book Show will probably look pretty much the same as it did um, 100 years ago. Uh, changes. I'm a skeptic about um, digitalization dramatically changing the industry. I think we've, um, you know, there couldn't have been a better time for proposals sure. of digitalization to actually make their case than two and a half years of pandemic. And I think as Doug said when you interviewed him, uh, no, digitalization wasn't discussed. He's always been a digitalization skeptic. Um, and I think Steve Monnington uh, in a recent interview said he's doing a lot of deals and whether companies have got a lot of digital revenue just doesn't come up at all. In other words, the sense that this would be cr 
critical for private equity that they would expect it doesn't seem to be coming through now not negative i mean close to still about 10 percent of closer to stills revenue is digital it's digital in area in webinars in, in in putting all of the content at our um healthcare shows which you know dan online on youtube i mean that's a form of digitalization uh charging people for that is a form of digitalization learning technologies is in its very nature a digital sector and has an enormous amount of digital revenue from its from a very very strong powerful 40 50 000, uh, group of learning technology specialists so I, i'm not negative at all and, and i think in certain sectors and in certain ways uh the industry will change and in in the right sectors we will do a lot more of webinars we will do a lot more of keeping in contact with people we'll do a lot more of acting on behalf of major exhibitors who want to get to specifically targeted groups and we can do that via digitalization don't necessarily need to do that at the show sure. so that will be different um to actually say how do we access the visitors and how do the visitors hear about us and come i mean the terrible thing is if you'd asked me this 15 years ago i would not have said that the majority will register on their phones because sure. i couldn't none because two of predicted built uh, steve jobs on the iphone would have been remarkable prescience and would have involved me putting every last penny of the family's money into apple shares which i didn't do <laughs> um so and that's only 15 years ago so yeah. you had another 15 years on something else like the iphone might just come along and might just change the way people react yes yeah, so it's the way that i'm not i'm not, not going to be around in 15 years time so it's the way that we that we promote the way that uh, we interact with the delegates um but ultimately when they get on site i guess what we're suggesting is the need is the same um as it ever was and hopefully uh that won't be that that will be the same uh in the future um phil thank you so much for your time um, pleasure, Dan. i'm going to leave you to the rest of your easter sunday uh, it's always yeah. a pleasure we wish you uh every success uh, in the future and i'm sure we'll be re reading more about your thoughts on the trade show and exhibition industry um it's always a joy uh, to speak well, to you my, my, ne my next one is things i wish i'd known 30 years ago oh right <laughs> about about the trade show industry not about okay you know whether chelsea would win two european cups <laughs> we look forward to reading that thank you so much cheers dan bye-bye